The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn, and I, of course, am your host, Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on this episode from the band Anvil, it is Rob Reiner and Lips. They have a new album out called Pounding the Pavement. We, of course, chit-chat about that, but we also look back at the story of Anvil. Yes, the movie, but also the actual story of Anvil. Uh, you know, I first saw the band in 1983, February of 1983. They were opening for Aerosmith in uh, Montreal. The Aerosmith lineup that, of course, did not feature uh, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford. We had uh, Rick Dufay and Jimmy Crespo, but we also had Brian Adams on the bill. Yes, a very, very, very young, dressed in jeans and white shirt and cute haircut, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, uh, Brian Adams. So uh, do imagine that, Bill. You show up and Anvil comes out uh, with sort of their metal-on-metal metal attack, followed by Brian Adams doing Straight from the Heart, and then Aerosmith doing you know, Bolivian ragamuffin or whatever was on that Rock in a Hard Place album. They certainly did lightning strikes that night. That I do remember. Uh, after that, I have got from one of my favorite all-time bands. Unfortunately, not as popular in North America as I certainly believe they should be, but just still massive in the UK. It is singer Danny Bowes from Thunder. Now, the band has recently announced a new live album that is going to come out on March 28th, uh, sorry, March 23rd, 2018, uh, called uh, Stage, captured at the Cardiff Motorpoint Arena, I believe. And uh, folks can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they were uh, opening for Alice Cooper or the, or they have since opened for Alice Cooper, which anyway, I just like to say the words Alice Cooper and Thunder in the same sentence because two of my favorite bands. Anyway. Uh, we talked to Danny about their last album. We talked about the Christmas single and all this. The interview was recorded before the press release for Stage was put out. And so we don't talk about the live album. We should talk about the live album. So I will rectify that and uh, get another interview with Thunder and delve into Stage, the new live album that is coming out in March. Uh, and since then, speaking of Stage, there is one band, uh, Slayer, that has announced their intentions to leave the stage. Um, yeah, the tour, though, is not officially announced. I believe it's going to be called End of Days, which which is interesting because uh, there's Slayer End of Days, and then there was an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called End of Days. So perhaps Slayer were inspired by Buffy. Hey. It's possible. Anything is possible. So we'll talk about that. Uh, well, in fact, let me talk about that. It is it is sad to see bands that have been part of the background or part of the, the what do you call it, the scenery for so many years to disappear. But, uh, you know, and, and by the way, 2018, I know of three, in fact, four other uh, reunion tours that are going to be announced, not reunion tours, part, part of my, part of my French, uh, farewell tours. There are three and four, actually, other farewell tours that, oh, you know, by the way, Satyricon, Satyricon also uh, announced their farewell tour. But yeah, there are other big bands that are going to announce farewell tours this year. Uh, two of them I'm particularly excited about just because of the configurations I heard about how it's going to be put together and who's going to be present on stage. And it's like, oh, really? Okay, I'm, I'm down for that. But um, not announced yet, so we'll, we'll see. Um, and no, it's not Van Halen. From everything I have heard, Van Halen is a non-entity, much like Rush. They just, we're done. Uh, and we're not coming back. But we'll see. I mean, Van Halen is, is, is a fabulous band, mysterious band. They work in mysterious ways. Who knows? Maybe as of, you know, today and yesterday and all the recordings and all the conversations I've had, they feel like it's over and we're never doing this again. And then in 2020, it'll be a massive world tour. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, hashtag bring back Gary Sharon. Yes, you heard me. Hashtag bring back Gary Sharon because we love Gary. Uh, and, uh, well... Van Halen 3, not his fault. Not his fault. The live 
uh, Gary Sharon stuff. If you can look at on look at it on YouTube, he was kicking ass. He was kicking ass. So so don't be blaming Gary because the band wasn't exactly what they should have. Been. Anyway, uh, so we'll see. Um, but uh, as as for Slayer and and some of the thrash bands, you know, you look at you look at artists like Chuck Berry and BB King. They're playing this sort of smooth, intense guitar, and that's and so yeah, of course they can go on until they're. 70 and 80 and you know until their end of days i see more and more thrash bands in the next couple of years uh announcing their retirement you you just cannot pound the pavement thank you anvil uh at that high rate you know ask any thrash drummer who has passed the age of 40 uh what it's like to do blast beats for two hours on stage it is uh, well, torture. It's just, it's torturous. So I think we've gotten into this next sort of three to five year window where we're going to start seeing a lot of the thrash bands say bye-bye. Not because they don't want to keep playing, but physically they can't. You know, doing, I can't get no satisfaction compared to doing, uh, you know, uh, Holy Wars. Not the same physicality. So that is coming up. Oh, and um, in the Anvil interview, and I forgot to mention this, uh, we talk about Chris Tangredis, the producer. And uh, yeah, he passed away earlier and um, just a big, big loss. I mean, he, he just, he did everybody. You know, Ingve Momstein, uh, Magnum, Praying Mantis, John Sykes, Thin Lizzy, The Tragically Hip Out of Canada, UFO, Tigers of Pantang, uh, Black Sabbath. Who else am I missing? Of course, uh, Anvil. Uh, newer band, The Amorettes, Judas Priest, uh, Tom Jones even, King Diamond, Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, boy, I'm just trying to remember names of uh, Y&T, uh, Bruce Dickinson. The man has has worked with everybody. And the albums that he's worked on, in most cases, it was their greatest albums. Uh, and his flexibility his range to go from Depeche Mode to Tigers of Pantang to Tragically Hip over to Black Sabbath and Anvil. I mean, wow, not a lot of producers can do that. There are great pop producers. There are great rock producers. There are great metal producers. There are great whatever dance producers. But to be sort of that guy that can do it all. So uh, many respects or much respect to uh, Chris Tangredes, who passed away on January 6th of 2018. But I do talk to Lips and uh, Rabo about that, and uh, there you go. So without further ado, because I have a dude long enough, but that's what I do. It's rock talk, and I'm talking. Uh, I will give you the guys from Anvil, Rabo and Lips. So here we are, the one and only Rabo and Lips of Anvil. We are speaking with Steve Lips Cudlow and Rob Rabo Reiner of anvil great canadian band anvil the new album is pounding the pavement pleasure to speak with you boys likewise nice, wonderful nice to nice to be here yeah absolutely and uh, i actually got to see you backstage at metallica in toronto earlier this year how was how was that event for you guys that was that was such a show right yeah it's really uh very 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 hopeful in the sense that this is what metal is doing. This is a good thing. It's 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 old friends yeah. doing doing the same stuff. You yeah. know, what I mean? yeah, it was good. To, it was good to see the Metallica boys again, and uh, just watching them uh, milk the sheep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they did a great night. So, so let's talk this new album, pounding the pavement, because. You look at the band's history back from hard and heavy up to now. You've been punching out albums almost consistently every two, three, four years. Uh, Anvil is Anvil in 2016. Uh, talk to me about putting this one together, the writing process, getting it to the fans, and you know, evolving the sound. Because I know that you have said in past interviews that you don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. So, so talk to me about putting this album together. Ultimately, what, what, we've, what I've tapped into is being spontaneous. This this is this is the biggest gift that you get as an artist, and it, you, uh, it you it takes actually what I've 
understood now is that it actually takes years to identify identify that because you you some kind some somehow you think you've got conscious control over what you're writing and the more that you try to have conscious control the harder it is so it's actually the letting go that that is the most advantageous thing you could do so you don't think about it too much so what it is i mean every time i plug my guitar in the first first five minutes i'll come up with a riff if it's the kind of riff that robo feels that he could dig into he'll join in and within 10 15 minutes you've got the bed track for the next song and that's basically and fundamentally how it goes if it's one of those days that that you do the riff and Robbo doesn't join in, then we'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? And if, yeah. if I happen to remember it from the day before, then it was strong enough to remember the next day. And if not, then it will be something new and we'll continue. And th- this is the process. It's basis, basically and fundamentally a very, very natural natural process rather than going we're looking for this specific thing you just come up with it let yourself come up with it let your let your fingers do the walking that that's what what i say yeah and talk to me about sort of the the putting out these albums one after the other you're going to force and fire strength and steel pound for pound you you never stopped for, through the through the good years the lean years now you've just always been creative talk to me about just getting music out there regardless of whether it was in the lean years or the or the good years just always having to have new music this is this it's we key, were actually yeah. just it's talking a, yeah about it's a key it's a key it's a key point absolutely to keeping the band going your artistic thing going if you don't do that it's called musical momentum and we've been working our asses off to build that up and uh we really feel that we're really on a roll now. You know, we did 200 shows on the last cycle, 200 shows. We've already got a hundred shows booked already for this album already. Um, that's what, that's what this is all about. You know, this is the best shitty day job we've ever had. I feel the same way about mine, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so that's basically what it is. You know, you have to have new, new music when you're creative and you're an artist, you have to always express yourself. And and here's the other aspect, very important to, to consider. If you if you're a band that's making hit singles, then you can go four years, five years between your releases. But a b- bands that don't have hit singles, it means you've got to keep pumping pumping out music to keep interest at all. Yeah. Now now talk to me about the new the new way, if if I can call it that, of getting it out there. You went the pledge music route initially with pounding the pavement. Um. It is very different than being signed to a major label and having them push all this promotion. Talk to me about getting it directly to the fans and and speaking to the fans through the Pledge Music site and getting the album put together that way. It's it's one of the greatest things that's happening. It's a new it's a new model that exists. We did it on Anvil is Anvil record and it was hugely successful because all that you're doing is you're connecting directly with the people who really like what you do. You can't beat that. And there's other things that you know like. Um, we have pledgers that will pay to sing on the record. We have, you know, and the fans come in and they sing on some songs with us, right? That's it's a tremendous, yeah, it's a tremendous, awesome connection with everybody. And it's uh, really worthy to do. We did it again on uh, Pounding the Pavement. And it, again, it was, it was an absolute, uh, absolute cool thing. And the really, the really devoted fans get opportunities that they can make a dream come true. Now, I don't know about you, but <laughs> if if I if I knew of a band that was let's say one of my favorite bands like when I was a kid, like let's say it was Captain Beyond. Okay, the Captain Beyond wasn't the biggest band in in the bunch, but was one of my favorites, but if there was an option that, you know, for 500 bucks, I could spend the day with them in the studio and they'll play an entire set for me personally. The whole band will get up and play a set in a studio fashion and and play all the songs, my favorite songs, and play them for me personally with no one else there. Would I would I be willing to pay that? And I would have to say in in a heartbeat. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Can, can you imagine this cheap is, trick offering? Kind of, 
<laughs> this, is the, this is the kind of thing that happened. It was, it was absolutely incredible. We had this guy by the name of Axel, and we, of course, we nicknamed him the Metal Baker because he's a, 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 he, he owns a bake shop in Germany. Well, he, he bought a day in the studio with the band. And, you know, we had we had thought that we were still going to be actually recording. But here we were in the last week loafing around because we got all our work done. <laughs> so it came down to, well, we've got to practice the set because right out of the recording studio, we're going to start back into touring. And that meant like literally from the recording studio, we went and played a festival and two festivals in Germany before even going home to leave to go to South America. And then after South America, China, after China, going to, going to Australia. It, 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 it's been an absolutely insane, insane twist of stuff. We, we barely, in a certain sense, we, we got through everything on time uh, to, in, 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 perfect, in a perfect sort of sense. We were able to, to blot out the month of August so that we could get the album recorded in between our tours. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unbelievable the, the 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 sort of the resurrection of the band and how you've been so busy. Um, Chris Tangredi's uh, producer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, bless his soul. I mean, the amount of music that he has been responsible for, from Judas Priest to Ingve Momsen to Tigers of Pantangs to, of course, yourselves, Anvil. Um, just talk to me a little bit about him as a person and as a producer, because he, he really understood, I think, what metal is and what a metal fan wants to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was a metalhead. And he had a, a great, a great uh, a vocabulary, vocabulary of listening, listening um, time. You know what I'm saying? He, he had a... Yeah. Had a good background, like you could talk to him about, like, like we do. We have a, a profound, huge understanding of all the music that came from Elvis on, and so did so did CT. Being exact, virtually the same age as me, he 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 was introduced to the same music at the, simultaneously. And he, 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 but, but the positive aspect about CT, he, he, in, in, in comparison to myself, is that his tastes went a lot broader. I, I went a lot more narrow. He, he was broader. He really, he really uh, had a, a very, very deep understanding of, of music, but he was also um, a psychologically, you know, for, for for being able to psychologically sum you up, uh, figure out your 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 uh, psyche, and able to get in and get you to do the work that needed to be done. Just, I mean, these are the, the, the you could I could go on about a multitude of positive things, but along with positive things come negative things. You know, and I you know I I, I prefer not to go in those areas, but but trust me that. With every relationship and every, and and we're talking about a multi, uh, a, you know, three times working with him. So there were, there were great things about working with him, and there were certain aspects that, geez, I wonder if that could have been better. Because you know, <laughs> we're all human beings. Yeah. All that happened with Chris, you know, he was a lot hungrier when he was younger, and he became less hungry as he got older. I think we're all sort of that way, right? We we're we're all pissing you know? vinegar at twenty, and as we get to be 50 and 60 we're sort of like eh you know the habs are on tv tonight <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, 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 right you know yeah. by the way i'm i'm a i'm a diehard montreal fan and they're letting me down this year yeah well same here and growing up i had ken dryden as my neighbor and uh this year has just been an incredible uh, disappointment for the habs but or, or the montreal canadians for those listening who don't understand what we're talking about um yeah Okay. Let me get back quickly to Chris. He he produced, of course, Metal on Metal. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, that's sort of like your crowning achievement. That's the album, right? Is that? Do you agree with me on that? Is that sort of the album or well, t- well, top three? With, uh, metal on Metal and Fortune of Fire were the, yeah. the two albums that were acclaimed beyond anything. Yes, that's true. And, and we've 
still can't live it down to this day, even though we make records in the last few, humbly speaking, that are absolutely equivalent to those records. But the fucking critics today just won't give it up to us. Yeah, they're, well, really, they're, they're really, and that's they're fine, really no, from, and by, by the same artists doing virtually the new same style for virtually the same thing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they just want to, it's just not, not, it's just not 1982 and 83 anymore. And you can't bring it back. The temperature of the human climate. You you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people remember that, you know, at the moment, like, you know, when they were at that climate. So, but yeah, there, there are classic records and that's the way it goes. Yeah, at least we have some, I'm sure. I mean, Lemmy heard Ace of Spades, Ace of Spades till the day he died. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, having a record like everybody that, needs, everybody and, needs and, one. man. And, and you know what? And, and Motorhead made great albums too. Well, after the fact, you know, you know, it's just interesting how it goes. We have a lot of longevity and a lot of musical, um, uh, creative output, man. Um, it's amazing on how it's perceived, even though when you're doing even in better stuff, yeah. some people won't just, they just won't give it up to you. The fans uh, will. Yeah, the fans. Well, the diehards will. I mean, you know, and I'm particularly thinking of a band like Anthrax. They, of course, had their great albums in the 80s. But if you look at what they're doing now, fans are just eating it up. They they love it. Um, let me take you back to this time. February 1983, Montreal Forum. Uh, as a young kid, I go see Aerosmith. And before Aerosmith, Brian Adams. And opening up, Anvil. Yep, um, yep. I remember. It was a great show, uh, and boy, I'll never forget it. Uh, you, of course, were managed by David Krebs. Talk to me about that tour, uh, because you you did other shows with Aerosmith. Brian Adams, I think, was only like Montreal and Toronto or something like that. But yeah. uh, talk to me about that those days, that tour, being part of the Aerosmith management team and entourage and, and what that sort of meant. And by the way... Here I am, whatever, what is it, 35 years later, and that show, I'll just never forget that show. It was just such a, I was like, wow, I saw Anvil when they first started. I saw Brian Adams when he wasn't Brian Adams, and I saw Aerosmith with two other guys. It was a wild show. Yeah, well, that time was basically for us, it was David Krebs showcasing our band to see if we're worthy. That's all it was. He gave us a bunch of shows, and we blew him away the first night. He said, oh, we must have been lucky we blew him away the second night he said this is not possible we blew him away the third night he said there's something un- not normal here and he just kept going so we kept playing and he just saw hey these guys are really for fucking real i think at the end it was, that's basically what it was he gave us a bunch of big shows to see if it's just uh, to see what it was you know, like what, the audition yeah. it was like an audition for him if you will right it was we were in the middle of ro- recording uh, the bed tracks for Forge and Fire, Correct. and Chris and Chris Tangaridis came with us to on go those, do those on, shows. On those tours. He, oh, that's he all it really was in its day. It was uh, David Krebs um, auditioning Anvil if uh, we're worthy to be managed, I guess, or whatever. Or that's all it really was. And what it, what it was is uh, initially that got David Krebs interested was the photographer for Kerrang magazine, Ross Helfen, came right on to him telling him about Anvil. Yeah, saying that these guys are the, you know, got a future, you know, these guys are the sound of the future, all that fucking shit that became all later. But at the moment, these guys saw whatever. And we, we were just young guys going, okay, whatever. Yeah, and got, sw- and got swept away, you know, oh, got playing. swept away by, by the big name because, you know, at, at, this, at the same time, Johnny Z is putting on a, an independent little show in New Jersey and we go do it and it's realistically the first metal show of all time in America. In America and it's like he, he wants to manage us like and, 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 and make us big. And meanwhile, you know, uh, we're, we're getting snagged up by David Krebs and uh, we are like, what do we do? Okay, we're going to go with David Krebs. Fuck, man. We're going to go play with Scorpions. We're gonna, I just met Steven Tyler. Holy shit. I mean, that's where you're going to go, obviously. But unfortunately, at the same time, because David Krebs did not comprehend what Anvil was. Yeah, he just didn't really know. Didn't what even he, understand he, what he, what he, the fuck we were musically doing. He knew he had doing. something that was going to be uh, really cool, but he didn't know what to do with it in 1983. 
1984 comes, um, Electroscience Metallica, and the same guy who came and saw us in 1983, he didn't sign us because he didn't understand what we were doing one year earlier. Goes, and I'm still friends with Michael to this day. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things, you know, you, you have the sound that became the sound by that other bands uh, took away from us. Um, they've told us right to our face. They've thanked us for it. You know, it's kind of funny, the stuff that we can talk about. That's right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, <laughs> I also find it funny to, to think back and say, Hey, I saw Anvil on a bill with Brian Adams. That's not a pairing that you're going to see. You know, in 2018, right? No, 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 not at all. That's for sure. Not at all. But but what a great show, though. We're really supposed to be going out with Motorhead. Where are we doing with? What are we doing with this shit? (laughs) And even I thought that. I'm going, what the fuck? What's a what's a Brian Adams? That's fucking pop music. What the fuck we doing here, man? Oh, it was it was (laughs) what a show. Now another big show or a big moment in your life was the Super Rock '84 in Japan, which of course White Snake, Scorpion, Michael Schenker's group. Uh, and, and it's where you start your movie, the the story of Anvil. Um, talk to me about that festival and what that meant for your career, because that that sort of was the springboard where you had more international exposure. Not to say that there was nothing going on before, but that's where people sort of went, "Wow, they're on this bill. Look at all these bands." Um, how was that experience for you? Well, that was again David Krebs uh, orchestrated that. That was the first touring. Uh, festival package ever done in Japan at that time. That was the first one. It was never, nothing ever like that existed. And David Krebs was responsible for organizing the whole thing. Now, the way that this happened is Attic Records had a a guy, this Danny Nishimura, who was hooked up to guys with big bucks. And Danny was the guy that actually had put Anvil, we got Anvil on Polydor in Japan and and brought us in early 83 to to play there. And from this connection, David David uh, was able to coordinate with, you know, Doc McGee, uh, who was uh, all, all, all the, big all guys the big other management managers and put together this this thing that they they called Super Rock 84. So the same promoter that had brought us to to Japan to begin with became the the major promoter of this big festival. So so tour, we, festival tour the festival tour. So it went five cities. The same bands toured baseball stadiums throughout Japan. That was the whole thing. What a great story. Um, but so let me let me quickly get into the Anvil, the story of Anvil. This film that comes out, I guess, ten years ago now, right? It's the tenth anniversary. Yeah, yeah. That was the past ten years. Yeah, wasn't it though? But but talk to me about that because here here you are, you know the the music industry obviously changed, and a lot of our classic bands at the beginning of, or at the turn of the millennium were were sort of floundering. Everybody, I mean, from Aerosmith to Def Leppard, to, talk to me about sort of the the idea of putting this movie together. Who who came to who and said, you know, what would be great, a movie? Um, well, Sasha, the guy who directed the movie, it was his idea. The whole thing, he he came to us about it. It's a long backstory. We won't go there. You know, we reconnected after not being in contact for 25 years. He found us, saw that we've been active for all these years, saw our our prolific, uh, prolific uh, catalog. Catalog, Saw that we had done 12 albums. And he was just going, going, what are you guys in the midst of doing? And And, um, he was just completely fucking floored away going, I I can't fucking believe that. You know, you guys uh, haven't uh, gotten what you should be doing. And then he he was a Hollywood film boy uh, with uh, uh, Spielberg, and then he just came up with this whole thing going, "Hey man, I want to make a doc and try to uh, let's show the story, man." That's pretty well it. Were but you? His, yeah, go ahead. His angle was his angle was strictly the story from today. We'll give some back history, but we're what are we doing right now? Yeah, what are you guys going to do right now? Is what I need to get. And we were doing all the stuff that's in the movie. So, you know, everything was in place for it to happen. And he just filmed everything for a couple of years. Took a lot. It was a lot of filming that went on. And he put together the movie that everybody knows. And unbeknownst to, uh, you know, some of us, you know, that thing uh, ended up becoming a rocket ship ride right out of this fucking universe. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I wanted. You know, as he's putting these, he's filming everything for a couple of years and he's putting it together. Did you have any expectations that it was going to become what, you know, the Times called? 
Listen, listen, listen my listen, uh, right on the onset. This okay, is the, this is the only guy that believed that. Listen, I'm going to right. tell you something. When you got a guy who who does the the the, the uh, screenwriting for Steven Spielberg is sitting to, sitting across from you in a in a living room, and he looks at you. He goes, "I'm going to make a movie about you." You got to. You gotta know this isn't some jackass with a with a fucking video camera, okay? You you follow where I'm going with this? Yeah, of course. There's, so, there's... Uh, it's it's somebody from Hollywood for fuck's sakes, not just somebody, somebody that worked with the biggest name that there is in Hollywood. Okay, I burst into tears. My re- my realization, my realization was in the, in instant in a split second because this was the break this was the break that was in my in my four dreams let me just put it to you that way after the after the failure of the of the David Krebs situation i knew that it was going to be the next time i'm going to get a real chance is when one of the kids that loved my band when i was when he was a, a kid is going to grow up to be some mogul of some sort and give me my chance. And that is actually precisely what fucking happened. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, and, and, and when that guy, when that man, guy said man. to me, I'm making a movie, I went, there it is. <laughs> but the thing that we, none of us realized at the fact, even to this day, okay, the movie, that movie still shadows us. It will never go away. Um, we've come to realize it. uh, it's a template classic of of ridiculous proportions. This was all unknown at the time that what it was going to actually do. It revolutionized the music business for a while where all bands tried to make movies like the Anvil movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, uh, in fact, that's a, that I was going to bring up that point that it changed the course of uh, music documentaries where everybody sort of tried to grab that same kind of thing that you did. And, and there was just sort of one unique story like that you can't copy it it it's it's right, you're you're, at, you're you're fucking absolutely right you see the under, the the thing that you have to understand it is part of it's the answer to my dream that one of my fans is going to come and come back and give me my break and they did that, that, so so that dream that dream got answered and has come come to come total fruition dude oh, yeah and so you can imagine the depth to, to the depth that it's affected affected us as as human beings to turn on the ignition that has been so long longed for if you understand what i mean so there's a there's a propellant there's a, a huge propellant uh aspect if if the band had sucked and not have had that spirit that we have, yeah, that we, we possess, none of this we here. wouldn't be sitting here talking about the movie 10 years later. The thing that really happened, the movie happened, it became huge. And what Lips and myself did is we picked up the ball and ran with it. And that's why we're here right now. We've been pounding heavy fucking albums that we've been living on a road for 10 years. And we've been building the band bigger and bigger because of all that. So we didn't just sit on our laurels and go, okay, the movie's huge and who gives a fuck? We went the other way. Now now we have our chance to really make something of this. Let me just quickly ask you something about this 10th anniversary. Seeing that it's been 10 years, is there any kind of plan to do some kind of deluxe edition or do some extra footage, an extra half hour or an extra 45 minutes of what's happened since or, you know, Anvil the Story Part 2? Well, Anvil Story Part 2, there's, Jeez, 50 min- there's 50 minutes of it that's been filmed and been sitting for about four years. And if the director ever decides he wants to finish it, I guess he will. That'll yeah, and, I, and, and ultimately, I think, I think he's, I think, well, first of all, he's extraordinarily busy as a result of Anvil, the story of Anvil. You know what? I've got the other calls coming in, man. Ah, well, then uh, let me just remind the folks that the new Anvil album is called Pounding the Pavement. Uh, and, of course, it includes the song Nanook from the North, which is very... Um, very, Canadian, very eh? Canadian. Yeah, I mean, I, we all saw that movie in high school, right? So, <laughs> uh, great pleasure, uh, great pleasure talking with you. I, and I, I'm so glad that we were able to do this today. Absolutely fantastic to, to 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 promote Canadian music and promote the band. And just thank you guys. 
Oh, thank you, Mitch. And we're set to come to Quebec soon, so in the spring. Absolutely. And I'll come and check that out. Thank you, guys. Okay, man. Have a good one. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Big thank you to the guys from Anvil. The new album, of course, is Pounding the Pavement. Do check that out. Now, Thunder, Danny Bowes, singer, one of my favorite. We are going to talk to Danny about the, uh, well, we're just going to talk about Thunder in general. They have a new album, a new live album coming out called Stage. It'll be out in March of this year, 2018. And this interview literally was like the day before the press release went out. And so I didn't know, and he didn't mention it. So we didn't really talk about, well, in fact, we didn't talk about the the upcoming live album, but we do talk about uh, the band and the last album, Rip It Up, and some acoustic recordings that they had done and so on and so forth. Thunder, for those of you who don't know, is one of those bands. Now, yes, a lot of rock fans we know Backstreet Symphony, 1990, Andy Taylor of Duran Duran produced it, yada, yada, yada. Great album, absolute classic. Laughing on Judgment Day, the second album in 92, again, absolute classic. But as bands progress and as bands get older, sometimes the level of enthusiasm for fans for new music and the band producing the new music, there's a a, a drop-off almost like falling down the stairs, right? At the top of the stairs, everybody's happy and glorious, and then there's a slow tumble down, and you get to the bottom. Thunder, out of the UK. Favorite band. One of my favorite bands. It That, that, that hasn't happened. I would actually argue that some of their later albums, including uh, Rip It Up in 2017, Wonder Days in 2015, and even the magnificent magnificent seven of 2005 are probably more essential than some of the earlier albums they have gotten particularly better and it just seems as though you know and i i i'm just gonna guess here i don't know what it is but it, it i'm assuming that at some point in the 90s a record company came to them and said you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to and they probably created some songs that were based for, okay, well, we, we need a hit for radio. The record company's demanding it. But now, from 2005 on, The Magnificent Seven, and especially the last two, uh, Wonder Days and Rip It Up, it appears as though the band is running on instinct. They know what makes a great Thunder album. They know what makes a great Thunder song. And they know what fits Danny's voice. They know what Luke Morley, the guitarist, is capable of doing. And they're just playing to their strengths. And it works. And it works, and it works, and it works. And I've mentioned it many, many times that I have these playlists in my phone that just sit there forever and always, like a comfort, like a a blankie, (laughs) right? A little comfort blanket. And so Thunder is a 200-song-plus playlist. Scorpions is a 265-song playlist. Cheap Trick, 340-song playlist. Um, 220-something for Whitesnake. And they sit in my iPhone, and it doesn't matter if it's a rainy day, a sunny day, a snowy day, which, unfortunately, we have too many of in Montreal. You go, ah, I'm in the mood for acoustic thunder. And you put it on. And it brightens everything up. And so, by the way, it does the cheap trick in the Scorpions. But Thunder is just one of those bands that stays with me everywhere, 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 everywhere. And um, it's it's unfortunate that I didn't get a chance to talk to Danny about the new live album, Stage. But I will buy it in its 87 configurations with bonus DVD and bonus footage and bonus CD and bonus this and bonus that. Um, I'm going to buy them all. Not waiting for a freebie. I'm buying them all. So So that's great. Um, we do need more thunder in North America. We do need more thunder fans to stand up and say, hey, bring this band over here. But anyway, uh, enough of the uh, rambling. Let us get into the one, the only, from the absolutely marvelous, magnificent, etc., 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 thunder. Here is singer Danny Bowes. We are speaking with thunder singer Danny Bowes. Uh, Danny, pleasure to speak with you. Uh, sitting here in North America, I feel like I'm one of the only guys that know you over here. Um, 
but that's not true. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, nice to talk to you. Uh, and in response to your point, uh, we are actually known in America, but just not by very many people. And yeah. It's the same in Canada, I think. Yeah, and in fact, I want to talk to you a, a little bit further down the road here about the uh, the child line uh, charity thing you did in Canada recently. But let's start off with the new single, Christmas Day, uh, the new EP. Um, talk to me about putting this song out and why sort of a Christmas single? And, and have you thought of perhaps doing a Christmas album? Um, well, first off, the song was recorded three years ago as part of the Wonder Days recording session. Uh, Wonder Days being the album before the last one, Rip It Up. Um, and we we liked the song, but we couldn't find uh, it in our hearts to put it on the album because when a song is called Christmas Day, it does rather um, date it. So it's quite hard to put it on an album that's released in February or March because people think you've either missed Christmas or you're very, very early. So we... Um, Decided to sit on it until we found a, a convenient time to put it out. And it felt like the right thing to do this year because we weren't going to be um, pushing or promoting an album uh, because we're going to be making a new album soon. So it um, it just felt like the right time to do it. Um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a double edged sword releasing a Christmas song because. You, uh, I certainly did worry that people may think we were making a very um, deliberate attempt to try to get a, a cheesy hit record, um, which is definitely not the case because if you've heard the song, you'll know that it's, it's a very sad song that just happens to have Christmas Day in the lyric. So it's, um, so it's a bit of a weird one. Um, and as for the releasing of a Christmas album, We've had so much mental torture dealing with our own concerns over one song. I think the idea of making a Christmas album may just make me end up in a loony bin. Yeah. Uh, now, you, of course, you mentioned Wonder Days, which, which is a marvelous album. During that, those recording sessions, you did an entire acoustic version of the album at the Rack Studios. A couple of those songs, like Broken and stuff, have come out on iTunes. Um, is there a plan to release the entire acoustic rack sessions at some point? Uh, well, to my knowledge, I think we've done most of it. I don't think we recorded the whole thing acoustically. We, we did a lot more electric stuff on the first day and not so much uh, acoustic stuff the second day. I mean, there are a couple of songs, I think, that are left over from that session, but I think probably the reason why we haven't re released them is that we're not overly um, happy with the way they turned out. We set ourselves a very big list of songs to record and to record them all live one after another with absolutely no time to breathe in between. There was no second takes, no overdubs, no nothing. It was, it was deliberately designed to be very, very old school, like they used to make records back in the day. And um, as an exercise, it was very good. Um, and I think that there are it's, it has a quality the session has a quality that you don't get when you do get a chance to go back and fix stuff um it, it kind of flies along with a degree of jeopardy which we really enjoyed but it's inevitable that you're going to get some winners and some losers luckily for us we ended up with more winners than losers um and but i think we uh we weren't um pleased with the ones that didn't make it so the chances of them getting released i'd say are probably quite remote quite remote um Love Walked In, new version offered on the on the EP. Great version, by the way. Uh, reminds me a lot of what you did with the Danny and Ben CDs, those two CDs where you sort of strip stuff back. Do you see yourself in the future perhaps revisiting uh, songs with uh, the Danny and Ben project or maybe with Thunder and, and rearranging them into this sort of more just a piano, just an acoustic kind of a, uh, arrangement? I think it's entirely possible that we might do that. I think um, the conversation, we've always played acoustic, but the conversation about re-recording and reworking, reconstructing, if you like, old tunes in a new way, only really came about with that particular song. Um, but having done it, I think uh, we're quite energized by the idea, and I think it's definitely something we would consider. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you look back at the CD by Danny and Ben, that version of A Better Man on there, 
to me is the ultimate version of that song. It just absolutely uh, nailed it. Um, Childline, you came to Canada in August and you rode around on your motorbikes and you played a few shows or you you, you set up. Um, Talk to me about Childline and the band's sort of um, charitable work because you've done a lot of shows and a lot of uh, rides like this where charity has been a, a main focus. Yeah, I mean, we've always done it. I think even going back to, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, we've always been um, fairly happy to embrace the idea of charity fundraising where we agree with the, the cause and we agree with the ethos of the of the charities. Um, we did a lot of stuff for uh, a homeless charity here called Crisis, which helps people, especially, I mean, all year round, but especially at Christmas time. Um, and we did some stuff for them. We gave the proceeds of a show to them and we got our fans to bring along uh, canned food and clothing and all kinds of stuff. And the fans were absolutely fantastic. I know Crisis were very, very impressed by the response from the fans. I mean, Thunder fans are fantastic. It's got to be said. And we, since then, we've moved on to Childline, which is a children's charity. Um, It's part of the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Uh, Childline is a is a manned telephone line 24 hours a day for kids who feel vulnerable, who need a voice, uh, a listen, uh, someone to listen, and um, it costs money to run it. So um, we've always helped out wherever we could. We've done shows and given profits, and we've done fundraisers and all kinds of stuff. And the ride is something that came about as a result of a conversation I had with a lunatic maybe seven or eight, nine years ago. And um, he's a guy who loves Harley Davidson's, loves motorcycles, loves music, and unfortunately got recruited to raise money for Childline. So as a result, uh, he kind of married the the three things together, brought it to me as a concept and said, will you do it? Um, We discussed it and said, why not? You know, we'll see what happens. I mean, and we've, and we've done it maybe I think seven years running now. So it's, uh, it's a good thing. We've raised a lot of money and we have a really nice time doing it. So, you know, what's to hate? <laughs> yeah, well, there's nothing to hate about it. And quite, it's quite uh, admirable, actually. Um, the Christmas shows, you just had uh, the, the two shows in England. Um, you've been doing these for many, many years and recording them and releasing them on CD. Talk to me about these Christmas shows because it's not just Thunder plugs in and plays. You bring, I mean, you've done all kinds of cover songs. You've rearranged stuff. It really is an event. Um, talk to me about that and putting those shows together. Well, I think the idea for the Christmas show, I honestly can't remember how it came about. Um, it started out as a very small thing. We wanted to do something really as almost like our our kind of end of the year Christmas party for ourselves. And the first time we did it, we put it into a very tiny little place that held about 200 people. And um, someone said, well, you know, you should sell tickets. And we thought, well, do we really want to do that? Why don't we just keep it friends and family and just play acoustic, you know, and just have a nice time and then we can all get drunk. But um, we were persuaded that maybe we should do it and we should uh, sell tickets. And we we basically made it available to fans and said, look, there's not many places, so be quick. And um, it sold out really quickly. So we added a second night, ruined the, uh, the venue's end-of-year Christmas show for themselves. It was their Christmas party, and we basically made them change their date <laughs> to accommodate our Christmas show, our second one. And um, did a second night and that sold out. And so we just moved it the following year and made it a bit bigger and a bit bigger and a bit bigger. And the whole thing has evolved and got mad. I mean, I think this year we sold 6,000 tickets. And it's, it's just a ridiculous monster that's grown out of all, all um, imagination. You know, we just – it's a great thing, though. I mean, we get to play songs we never play normally. Um, we get to play acoustic. We get to play electric. We play covers. The whole atmosphere is ridiculous. I mean, everybody gets to dress up. Uh, there's snow, there's Christmas trees, there's inflatables. It's just it's just a completely different sort of event than anything we do the rest of the year. And I think fans now know that the format is different and they just love to dress up and come and have fun with us. And it's the last thing, literally the last thing we'll do every year. It's great. Yeah, it really is a great show. And 
and you've of course put out a lot of them on on album or made them available for download. Uh, hopefully, uh, this year's we'll we'll see the same treatment. Um, Bose and Morley, the band that came out in two thousand and two, moving swiftly along, and Moe's Barbecue in two thousand four. Uh, with Luke Morley, very different in terms of musical approach to what Thunder does. Um, sort of born out of the disbanding of a Thunder. Uh, talk to me about that project and why, right after having disbanded with Thunder, did you get right back in there with Luke and then offer something that's sort of musically very different to what Thunder does? Well, I think the last thing any of us wanted to do when we stopped in Thunder the first time was to jump back in and make another record. And we certainly didn't want to make another Thunder record because that would have defeated the object of splitting up. Um, I had uh, been offered a record deal to make a solo album. And I spent probably the best part of three years going down blind alleys, writing with people and trying to find the music that would make me happy enough to record it. And I just became very despondent because it just wasn't working the way I hoped it would work. And then I had a conversation with a very good friend who runs a Japanese record label. And he, he told me that he was going to get that record when it came. So he asked me how the record was coming along. And I told him, I don't think it's ever going to come. I'm very, very kind of miserable about the process Everybody I seem to work with seems to fall out with the other guys. And, you know, I've just spent my time just trying to keep the project on track and it's just driving me mad. So I don't think it's going to happen. So he said, well, why don't you, why don't you get out of that record deal and come and sign it with me and I'll help you make the record. So that was the beginning of it. And I had the conversation with Luke and explained to him one night over dinner what was going on. And he said, well, why don't you let me write the record? We'll make a different kind of record. Maybe we'll explore all the other influences that we've got and uh, see if that is acceptable to the label. And um, we had the conversation and we took it to the label and uh, they loved it. So they gave us the money. We made the record and, uh, and we released it. And then we made another one a couple of years later. But of course, timing being what it is, uh, Thunder then came back and that kind of put a massive spoke in the wheels of the Bose and Morley project, um, as it does with all our side projects, to be honest with you. Thunder's, Thunder's a monster. It's an absolute monster that takes over your life. I and mean, that's part of the reason why I've had to take a break from it every now and again, because it is a monster. Right. And, well, and so let's talk about that real quick, because you, you've essentially broken up the band twice. There was the first one around 99, 2000, and then around 2009 again. You said, well, it's a farewell tour. And yet the band still exists, and you still go on. Um, why is it that you sort of can't walk away permanently? What is it about Thunder that you, you just, you know, you, you, you got to keep coming back? It's a, it's a very tough one, that. I think when we walked away in 2000, I think our reasons were very simply because the music business had changed. We felt like we couldn't really compete with the record labels that were available to us. Bearing in mind, we've been with major labels We've been with rich independent labels and the difference between them was quite marked. Uh, grunge had happened. It was very difficult. The climate was such that it was very hard to get people to write about you. Certainly very difficult to get people to, to, uh, to listen to you on the radio. Uh, internet didn't exist. You know, it was, it was a weird, weird time because we couldn't compete. We thought, well, maybe we should think about doing something else. Uh, we're all young enough to maybe carve out another career doing something else. And so we split up. Two years later, the Internet had arrived and we were offered a chance to go play a tour with Alice Cooper. And um, I'll be honest with you, the money was great. And we thought the Internet's here. Maybe we don't need record labels anymore. Maybe we can communicate directly with our fans and maybe they can communicate directly with us and we can make our music available to them. They can tell me, tell us what they think and we can make that happen. And, it, and we did that. I mean, it was fantastic. We released albums over the next seven years until uh, probably the end of 2008. The problem was that during that period of becoming your own record company, you come to realize that it's not just as simple as making a record and releasing it and making it available. It, with every album, it gets harder and harder and you end up growing all these extra jobs which after a while become really difficult when, you, when you're doing them all on top of everything else that you're doing. So I became 
fairly frantic. Uh, by the end of 2008, I was very genuinely concerned that I was going to have a nervous breakdown or a heart attack or both. So I decided in the end that I had to basically stop or I would hurt myself. And um, when I told the band, they were all naturally very disappointed and it took the wind out of their sails ever so slightly, but they understood in the end. And um, so that's why we split up. We've made a farewell tour. It was very emotional. We had absolutely no intention of coming back. Um, I certainly didn't. I went off and got a job as an agent. You know, I went to work for an agent for two years and uh, it was um, it was fine, I think. But the problem is that, you know, Thunder's a very easy band to be in and a very difficult band not to be in. So we, um, because we all get on very well as people, we're, you know, as human beings, we're very lucky. You know, we laugh. We just laugh all the time. So it's very... Um, very difficult and very easy to jump back in again when somebody makes you an offer to do something. And that's exactly what happened. They offered us a chance to go out and play with a band. I think it was Journey and White Snake, and we did the tour and the tour was fantastic. And the audience was just wall to wall thunder fans wearing the shirts and singing all the words. And, you know, by the time we got to the end of the tour, Luke said to me, you know something, I think we really need to make another record because if we don't, we may not ever get a chance to do it again. Let's see what happens if we make another record. So rather than repeat the sins of the past, we signed to a record label that time rather than try and do it all ourselves. And um, record label really got it. And it's it's been a really kind of interesting roller coaster ever since because the whole thing has gone mental. Once again, the monster has emerged triumphant. It really has. And, and um, a lot of the a lot of music came out on dodgy discs and STC recordings. Uh, that it that has become very much unavailable. Is that something that, as the band moves forward, you might think, okay, it might be time to repackage this music or remake it available in some way or another? Or is it like, well, been there, done that, keep moving forward? Yeah, well, there may be an element of both, actually. To be honest with you, I think, you know, when you run your own record label, you have to suddenly wear that hat. You know, the one that says, it's time to delete this album, sales have slowed right down, do we want to spend some more money on another couple of thousand copies, you know, and then wait forever to get our money back? You know, unfortunately, you have to wear that hat as well as your artistic one. And, um, you know, I'm largely responsible for the deletion of a lot of those old records. And um, and if we feel like it's it's worthwhile doing it, then we'll consider maybe licensing them or making them available again. But at the moment, I can tell you there are no plans to do that. We are very, um, very focused on going forwards and uh, making the most of, uh, of the, uh, the new position we find ourselves in, which is quite mysterious, quite bewildering, but we'll take it. You know, we're quite happy to take it and smile. Let me talk about the moving forward, because as a fan in Canada, I see Thunder touring all over Europe, heading out to Japan, and not coming over to North America, except for the, the, the crews coming up. It is a very difficult market to, to break into, and it's a very difficult market to tour in. Has, is there a plan to sort of try to become, you know, re-acclimatized with, with what's going on over here? Or is it just like, well, you know what, at this point, England is going to be our, our baby, and we'll just focus on this? Well, I think it may look from the outside like we're not bothering, but I'll be absolutely honest with you, we've never stopped trying to come and play in America and Canada. We've never stopped. We've always tried it. We always follow up absolutely every single inquiry. I think the problem is that, as you've mentioned, those markets are vast. The geography is very difficult to um, to tame. And I think unless you've got the confidence of promoters who are prepared to back offers to get you to go and play, it's incredibly difficult to try to do it off your own back. So, you know, if all I can tell you is if somebody made us an offer to come and play shows in North America, we would be there in a heartbeat. The problem we have is those offers are not forthcoming. And so we go where the love is. And at the moment, the love is in the UK, the love is in Europe, and the love is in Japan. Yeah, it really is. Um, Backstreet Symphony, the first album, came out, and it was very much a hard rock thing, very much sort of on the tail end of the hair metal thing, which I know people don't like that term, but that is the term. Um, talk to me about that album and working with Andy Taylor. Here's a guy who, of course, was in Duran Duran, but 
was a rock guy at heart. Um, what was that like? And musically since then, you, you've, you've become very varied. You've moved on. It's, it's not just every album, rock, rock, rock. Um, talk to me about that first album, working with Andy, and then, of course, the sound of the band generally now. I think um, you have to put it against the, con- against the context of the time. Uh, we just come out of a band called Terraplane when we met him. We made two albums for um, what is now Sony, and um, we made every mistake a young band could make. I think we uh, we forgot to look in the in the book of rock mistakes, where on page one it says never assume that your record label knows what they're talking about, and uh, we missed that page. And we um, we just assumed they did, and it turned out they didn't. So what happened was three years later, we'd made two albums, made every mistake a band could make, and we were very angry when we were on the junk pile. And um, we probably spent the next six to nine months thinking about what we were going to do. A lot of soul searching and navel gazing, wondering whether or not we should start a new band. And eventually we decided we would. So we cut away the Deadwood in the band, cut away the management, and we started a new band. And just about that same point, we got a new manager and we got a new accountant of all people who also happened to represent Andy Taylor. And when we had the conversation with him one day about producers, he said, you should meet Andy. And we said, what, the guy from Duran Duran? You know, and then we laughed and he said, no, 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 no. He's a rocker. His favorite guitar player is Eddie Van Halen. So we said, Oh, okay. So we met him and we got on like a house on fire. It was obvious he was a kindred spirit. Um, He loved the band straight away, Um, but he could see that we'd had a kicking. He could see that um, our confidence was low caused by the record company and the, and the, uh, and the lack of firm management, decent management. So he helped us. He helped us a lot. I mean, he helped us mostly by pouring drink down our throats and making us very, very angry. So that when we made that first album, Ben in the band, he's, he's, he's the most apt quote about that first album. He says it was like a party where an album broke out. And that's absolutely what happened. That's funny. We were mostly drunk and very, very angry. So you, what you ended up there with is a very, very uh, aggressive rock album, which as time passed, you know, we uh, we managed to tame slightly. You know, we needed to to uh, tame it ever so slightly or we wouldn't have lasted very long <laughs> because the way we went about it, we were like dogs out of traps. It was really very, very hard. And we had a very nice time. Get, don't get me wrong. We had a very nice time. But I don't think uh, we could have lasted very long if we'd have done that. And musically, we've always had a very, very um, broad taste between us. We like pretty much everything. And um, we've never ever wanted to make the same record over and again. Some bands make a make a career of it, but it's never really been our way. We've always felt that we needed to be stimulated by the music. Felt like we were evolving as a band, as musicians, and um, and I think we've tried to do that pretty much on every record we've ever made. We've always tried to put in something which tests the audience and tests ourselves. And I think. Uh, you know, we're getting better and better at doing that. And I think it's uh, it, it's making for more and more interesting records. Certainly at the moment, Luke is, um, is about as inspired as I've ever seen him. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and you know, you look at an album like Rip It Up, which, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, where does the band sort of go musically from, from now on in terms of the next one? Is it like another just sort of we're going to put some rock songs and some, some slower songs? Because it's got to be a freedom now uh, – Unlike in the old days when the record companies and, and, and radio said you have to have this kind of song, where do you see yourself going with the next Thunder album? I'll be absolutely honest with you. We've never, ever embraced, since we started Thunder, I mean, our whole approach to it was no one's going to tell us what to do. Uh, we had that with the previous label, and, and all that anger I talked about earlier came out in the early days of Thunder. And we've always maintained that we will do exactly what we want to do. And maybe that's held us back in some ways. Um, you know, I'm quite happy to admit that maybe we made some choices that we shouldn't have made, but I think we have to look at ourselves in the mirror every day and, and, and feel good about what we've done and take it on the chin if we, if we screw it up. So we've, um, we've made our own choices and we've never really worried too much about what other people think. We just want to 
make records that make us feel good. Yeah. And if they make us feel good, then hopefully the audience will feel good about it. And if the media like it too, then that's a real bonus. If they don't like it, it's just between us and the audience at the end of the day. So that's, you know, that, that's good enough for me. And I think because of that, I don't really have a grand plan. I don't think Luke has a grand plan for the, for the next studio album. I don't know at this moment in time how it's going to turn out. All I know is we go in there wanting to do a better record than the last one. And, and I'll finish with this. Um, in, in an interview with Dave Ling, Harry James once said that Luke and Danny have always been perfectly matched. They should probably get married. Um, talk to me about Luke Morley and, and what he's been for you in terms of, of a partner in a band and a friend. That's a very difficult one to analyze, to be honest with you. I mean, we've known each other for 46 years, which is nuts. We've been in a band together for 45, no, not that's not right, 43 of those years, I think, something like that. And in that time, you know, we've done just about everything that you can do together. You know, we've had loads of highs, some lows. We've had very few arguments, I think, purely and simply because he is the ultimate diplomat and would probably run 100 miles rather than have an argument with anyone. And I would have a hundred. I would run a hundred miles to have an argument with someone. So I think in that regard we're well matched. Um, he's um, very creative, um, and I am super practical. I'm concerned with business. He's concerned with with art, art and the creation of music. So I think we complement each other very well. We come together with the direction of the band. Um, as human beings, we're very different completely different. We don't spend a great deal of time in each other's company when we're not touring or when we're not in the studio. Um, we don't really feel like we need to, but we talk on the phone all the time. And um, it's a fairly unique relationship. I'm very proud of it. Um, but I, but I, it's always been there, you know, so I kind of take it for granted. And I suppose it's inevitable he would. It's a human condition. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Danny, a great pleasure. Uh, big fan of, of everything you've always done. Uh, hopefully there'll be some more Bose and Marley albums, more Danny and Ben albums, and uh, just more Thunder. Always always great to have all of it. You just want everything, don't you, Mitch? I do. I do. And I want the acoustic album and the Christmas album and all the live recordings. There's <laughs> there's a lot to do. A lot, a lot of work you. for you. A lot of work. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you. And uh, always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond.